0: Welcome to COVID Conversations, I'm Christos Schweiger. Together we're going to meet some interesting people. Our topic, 2020's biggest story. With us today, Manuel Delia. Before the coronavirus pandemic, Malta was in the middle of a political crisis. New details about the murder of journalist Daphne Caruana-Glitzian came out. And in the weeks and months that followed, Prime Minister, Chief of Police and MP were among those who stepped down. I wanted to learn how a public health emergency affects the work of people fighting corruption, so I spoke to a blogger and activist to find out. first of all, thank you very much for accepting to be a guest on the COVID conversations. First of all, how would you describe yourself to someone who isn't from Malta?
1: Um, well, I'm a, I'm a blogger in Malta. I, I comment and write uh, about political affairs here. Um, I suppose some of the area of interest for people reading my blog would be the fact that I have a political background and I was in involved in party politics until about four, four or five years before I started writing. I'm interested in uh, anti-corruption issues, uh, good governance, civil rights. Um, I'm also uh, active in the community. Uh, I'm one of the founder members of the NGO Republica, which was set up in the aftermath of the killing of Defnica Caruana Galicia. Um And uh, we campaign for uh, primarily, and and first and foremost, truth and justice in the case of Daphne and of of the work that she did. Uh, But also, more broadly speaking, um, we campaign for institutional and constitutional reform um, uh, for Malta to to address uh, serious deficiencies in the makeup of our democracy. We also act as watchdogs, and I think in my role as a journalist, I do that as well as much as I can, act as watchdog on... Uh, abuses of, of civil rights and uh, encroachments by the government uh, in areas which should rightly not belong to it.
0: You mentioned Daphne, and I actually learned about your blog through her writing, when, before October 2017, before she was assassinated, when she had linked to your blogs as well, and that's how I discovered it. Now. It's safe to say that Daphne was one of the most hated people on the island because clearly someone wanted her dead because of her writing. Now, sort of, you're also blogging and also blogging on the same issues that she was writing on. Would you say that now you're one of the most hated people on the island instead of her?
1: Well, I try not to count, um, but but certainly from some of the reaction I get, um, yeah, not everybody likes me. and And it's not surprising because... Um I, my, my, my job, if I'm going to do it properly, is going to uh, annoy uh, people, because it's going to prick their conscience, um, not only because they might have done something wrong. I mean it is, it is obviously facile to, to, to say that if I'm going to write about a politician and expose some wrongdoing, they're not going to like me for it. People confuse uh, the news with, with its author most people who have supported the politician uh, do not want to face up to the fact that they are partly responsible for their wrongdoing as well. In that, they have made a value judgment in in choosing to support that politician, which value judgment turned out to be wrong. They chose the wrong person for the post. And that is not a very easy thing to admit. Um, Something that definitely went through, uh, and, and I really got to know her, uh, the last few months of her life, the last summer of, of her life. I mean, it, it was three years ago now, and it's, it's it, 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 you know, the heat reminds me of it, because at around this time of year, um, she was covering the campaign for the leadership of the Nationalist Party. Now, because she was so critical of the Labour Party for years, many people in the Nationalist Party were there out of genuine agreement with what she wrote or because they found her criticism of the Labour Party politically convenient, liked her or professed to do so. Uh, but we, when she focused uh, her criticism on Adrian Delia's campaign for leadership and Frank leadership uh, campaign for leadership, and she exposed their inadequacy for, for the position of leader of the Nationalist Party, uh, she found herself being hated more than usual, because hated by people who uh, were waving her flag a month before. You're reminded of Jesus coming in on the donkey on a Sunday being called Osanna, and four days later people uh, screaming crucify him. And when it's the same people turning like that, it, 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 it feels it feels hard. Now, um, I'm not the only one criticizing the Labour Party on, on, on a blue, But I think I am one of the few with an actual background from the Nationalist Party that is very critical, of the Nationalist Party and and, and the Nationalist Party leadership. And I find that because that is a specialist area of my blog, leadership of that sort of writing is, is, is considerable. There's interest which also stimulates some of the harshest reactions possible because ultimately what you're doing is you're pointing out to people that they've made the wrong judgment call in terms of leaders. There's the, you know, the, the old phrase, you get, we get the leaders that we deserve. I'm not sure about that, but we certainly get the leaders that we choose in a democracy. When uh, the leaders that we choose uh, turn out to be the wrong people because they fall into temptation as anyone can, uh, then it's on them. But when they fall into temptation because uh, they have the wrong character and the wrong personality for public life, then it's on us because those things we should have seen through. And this is, um, I think, one of the tough things that you know definitely never managed to put across, and I don't manage to put across that the role of journalists is not just to report facts, although that is fundamental. But that's 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 a section of journalism in the way I don't know. Being a pediatrician is part of medicine. Then there is also commentary and analysis, and some of it is making value judgments about character of people in public public life so some people will tell you i shouldn't be talking about private matters belonging to politicians and yes of course there are limits but some private matters need to be known by the public so that the public can make an informed decision when they give politicians power over them and 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 journalists have the responsibility to share what they know as long as it's true and when we do that, um, and sometimes, uh, to be fair, it's it's a tough call. Is this a purely private matter, or is it something that we need to be talking about? When you make that call, uh, you often get um, very tough reactions from people who think you should have made a different call, mostly for partisan reasons. One of my biggest ones was um, two Christmases ago. Uh, When I reported and I broke the story, uh, that most journalists knew, but were waiting for someone else to take the first step. Uh, Which was that the leader of the opposition, uh, his marriage had broken down. But it had broken down because of suggestions of of adultery and of domestic violence. Um, and, And... You know, I I stepped into that, because for days, you know, journalists just were expecting the sort of reaction they would get when that would come out, and someone had to do it, and I thought it was my job to do it, and I did it. Uh, Let's say you could safely say that that was a particularly intense week and an intense month after that. Uh, Now, why did I make that call? Because um, marriages breaking down are a normal part of, you know, life. But when they break down, because of alleged domestic violence and adultery. For someone who wants to be prime minister, that is a matter of public interest. And, but if you're in the business of wanting to be liked, you should be a slapstick comedian because uh, this business is, 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 uh, is, is not a business and that is intended to make people like you. If everyone likes you, you're not doing it right.
0: How would you say that you were affected by the coronavirus pandemic in your line of work? Two things happened.
1: One is the events on which I comment and which I monitor slow down and were taken over by different events. Different events that are not in my line of journalism. So, so if you were a, journal, a journalist who uh, specialized in, in, in health news and in, in public and social affairs, um, this would have been a busy season for you. But if you, like me, um, are more focused on rule of law issues and have been uh, uh, you know, sort of one of the reference points for coverage and commentary about what's happening in court, what's happening in the judicial system, what's happening in law enforcement, given that most of those basically went on holiday for the COVID-19, uh, uh, for me, you know, in, in many respects, it became like an extended August. The events that drive the commentary slow down. The other thing that happened is readers' receptiveness changed, especially during the time when there was genuine fear that this thing could get out of hand. And everyone was sort of glued to the news to look for signals of that happening. Um, So the daily updates of how many people were infected and tested, et cetera, et cetera, became like this, you know, very long regatta that everyone you know had their eyes peeled on it peeled on it and, and people feared that if they take a, their eyes away from it um they would be bringing infection upon themselves effectively and therefore everything else became a distraction you know th- there are things that happened in that context that really needed journalism and that really needed journalists acting as watchdogs because Governments took upon themselves powers that are reserved for emergency situations. But this was not an earthquake, you know, that that once you sort of fix the road somewhat, you go back to normality quickly. This was an open-ended situation. We really, in March, we had no idea if this was going to last a week, or a year, or more, you know. People were comparing it to the Spanish flu. And therefore we were looking at the prospect of four years of these emergency powers in the hands of the government. We could see that the temptation to exceed and exploit those emergency powers for for politicians in some cases was irresistible. And it would have been worse had there not been journalists really watching this and watching this closely. And it happened in Malta as well. The um, COVID-19 emergency was used by the government here to justify, um, let's call it, a deterioration in its policy on searching and rescuing migrants in Maltese, search and rescue area of responsibility at sea. The decisions that they took around the Easter weekend were unprecedented. Malta has said, they call it a problem. Let's call it a challenge, let's call it a situation. Malta has handled migrants coming at sea for 12 years, but there aren't many situations in those 12 years that are anywhere near things that happened in around the 12th of April here in Malta. In one case, for four days, a boat in their area of responsibility, which had they which they had sighted, and which they were responsible to dispatch vessels to rescue, you know, they left it there. Um, while people died, starving, or, or dehydrated, or just drowning, because they jumped into the sea in despair. But other things happened. There was a dispatch of a private fishing vessel, instead of a dispatch of idle, equipped patrol boats, to do the rescue. There was a pushback towards Libya, which is against all legal conventions. There was... Uh, push out from Maltese territorial waters, not search and rescue area, within the, co- the site of the coast of Malta. And 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 the push out happened under armed guard, and people were pushed onto Sicily. Another uh, international crime. A- and the government you know, felt that they could get away with that, because everyone was scared. Here, the shared sense of community, of all being in danger, to- in danger together, huddled together waiting for some sort of tsunami to take us over, a, tsunami, a viral tsunami, but also in the confusion and the paranoia, it was a tsunami of virus, of, of black invaders, you know, all this psychological mashup that comes out of fear, and which the government was exploiting to um, implement policies that are not within its legal power, are illegal, and are a breach of fundamental human rights. Um, And I think in the combination of reporting of journalists, I was part of a community of journalists um, that really got close, uh, got into the story in depth. Um, But also, you know, there was the New York Times, Guardian, La La Italy, um, that, that really went into the details and exposed them and the, the activism of the NGO part of Republica that escalated the pressure by initiating criminal investigations into what was happening, has had the effect that when the situation repeated itself, the government did not resort to these methods and scaled down its actions. It was still skirting with the limits of uh, the law. Uh, it certainly went over the limits of decency, Um, but it did not resort to letting people die of thirst or to pushing them back to Libya, to to concentration camps there. So I would say that although the ongoing normal agenda that dominated the focus of my work before COVID-19 to some extent slowed down until it picked up again when the court opened in the beginning of June, there was still a very important and very busy function for, for journalism and for activism during COVID-19. But if you need to watch government exceeding their powers in ordinary times, you really need to scale up your effort of monitoring and watching uh, the way government wields its power in times of emergency. Because in times of emergency, the temptation uh, to, to, of governments to use the power that is given to them uh, can prove irresistible as it has here
0: during the migrant situation you were in favor of safeguarding the rights through your writing and through your activism did you get any additional backlash from people who thought a pandemic wasn't the right time to talk about the rights of those not born and raised in malta yes um, and it was uh, you know as, as as things tend
1: to be here mobilized and, and uh, uh, organised by the government, by the ruling party in government and by its partisan media. In any other circumstance under normality, a challenge to uh, the government on acting illegally would be met by some form of response, which is to address that challenge and to explain why the government's actions are within the law. And that is uh, predictable and perfectly acceptable and part of uh, the discourse that you, we, are, you know, we are to expect. But that's not what happened in this case. The issue was never what Republica or what its lawyers or what I and other journalists were saying. The issue was the fact that we were saying it. The rhetoric that was used by the prime minister who led the charge pumped up by media that the prime minister controls, whether it's public sector or private sector, and, and then people volunteering because they all like to be part of a bandwagon. Was that, what, what what we were doing was an act of treason. This is not unfamiliar. So in two years of campaigning and asking, you know, for proper investigation into the clinic of Defne Caruana Galizia, the act of calling for this spineless prosecutor to be replaced, or the act of calling for this corrupt police officer to be replaced, was repeatedly branded as an act of treason. We are labeled as haters of Malta for doing this, and and people who support the government support Malta. Now, in the COVID emergency context, this was increased by several notches. So you had the government literally telling people to wrap themselves in the flag, um, the flag of Malta hanging out of balconies. This place became, like some form of, you know, fascist rally. Everyone is speaking about, you know, how they love Malta, and you know, because particular Malta needed particular loving because the virus was, um, was threatening it. People equated the virus with, with black people, which is comes easy for a racist because a racist sees a person of a different race in the way, you know, you, you would see a rat scurrying in your garden. Vermin, something that needs to be killed on site. That racism was really mobilized, it was mobilized by the Prime Minister, by the government, and by the media they controlled. Some of my colleagues were speckled at the street because they were, went on television arguing why letting people drown or letting people die of thirst at sea was, was not right for daring to say so, effectively what we were accused, not not of treason in the symbolic sense, but of sabotage. That what we were doing was undermining the government's effort to protect people from being infected by the virus. And that therefore effectively we were some, we were conducting some form of biological warfare, bringing in the disease ourselves. When the government said, we're closing our harbors, because we need to do so for the Amer- uh, emergency situation. They weren't, they, they were using something that makes sense in the sense, listen, you know, we're not continuing the cruise lining business for now, because there's a pandemic, which is perfectly understandable. And extending that to say that yes, if someone is drowning out, out at sea and they're black, we we'll let them drown because that is a method, that is how we prevent little old lady living in Mosta from getting infected with with, with COVID. Um, and and you know, I mean, ignorance about disease is not something extraordinary. It happens. Um, especially a disease which is completely new, where ignorance is institutionalized. I mean, even, even the bosses weren't really sure of things and they would tell you, no put on a mask, don't no, put on a mask. So so that uncertainty people could see. And therefore, people could be more afraid, and they justified to themselves the most despicable and hateful attitudes towards people struggling uh, to, 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 to live. Um, and, 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 and making them making them into the same thing, actuating
0: them with the disease that people were protecting themselves from. You mentioned the importance of journalism as watchdogs, especially in times of crises like a pandemic. How would you rate Malta's journalism during the coronavirus crisis? Was it too reliant on government statements and official spokespersons said X and Y? Let me be honest with you.
1: In a time of medical crisis, what I would expect from journalists first and foremost is to rely on official information, I would expect for that inf- official information to be correct and to be honest, and to the extent that that information was about, um, listen, this is what the virus is, this is how it's coming in, and this is how we're stopping it, and this is what we need you to do to help us do that. There, there was, and I think still is, uh, very reason, very little reason to think there was any dishonesty in the government attitude of that. The correct public service was to carry that, to provide the information to the public so that it it can equip itself with information it can understand, to do its part to fight the virus. Um, And and by and large, I would say that worked. I think it really became nasty when um, the government, particularly the prime minister, was going to exploit that in order to further policies that would otherwise be unacceptable and illegal did um, the, the press, uh, you know, not stand up to the government in that respect, I think there are limits as well, which I understand, and, and the government wrongfully exploits them. So I told you about the time when the Prime Minister led the charge of, of branding, you know, Republica, their lawyers, journalists, as supporters and as traitors. The Prime Minister didn't do that in a, in a press interview, didn't do that in a press conference. The Prime Minister got his ministers to stand behind him, interrupted by his own order and authority, the main news broadcast on the public service, addressed the camera for 10 minutes, and walked away. And there's, there's very little the press can do in the situation, because ultimately what the government does is, it removes, it cuts the middleman, and, and communicates directly with the public without any form of intermediation, any critical questioning, any of that sort of stuff, most of the policy decisions announced by Roberta Bella were in conversation he held on the television station owned by his political party, so owned by him effectively, with an employee of his, in, in his staff asking him the questions. So, so 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 not um, something that is made to look like an interview, but it's not an interview at all. I mean, it, it, it is... It is you know, like a nativity play is something that you know exactly where it's going to start and where it's going to end and who's going to come in at, which, at which, whichever point. The real problem we have here uh, is not the quality of the journalism, although, of course, that can be improved. Uh, the real problem here is that um, the government and political parties control and dominate a huge chunk of the media landscape in Malta. The public independent television service or media service was truly independent before the government asked, okay, I'm going to, you know, speak about something controversial, switch off the news and go live to me so that I speak for 10 minutes. They would have said, hold on, we're going to send our reporter to ask you questions. or else we're not going to do it. TVM is not an issue of TVM should be able to do that and not get orders from, those, from Robert Abella. TVM has the duty to do that. TVM needs to say no to the prime minister and say listen you have something to say is this a public health announcement? No.
0: Dispiaċu, aleš f'moment. Ta emerġenza
1: tas-saħħa pubblika, kif dik jarat supretendent is-superintendent tas-saħħa pubblika, f'moment fejn tal-li qed niddedika u rruħna l-xidma bla waqfin u bdedikazzjoni assoluta. برس بايزنا ونستانا أمين رت يشقتنا الحبس ألمورنا. This is about Republika and what bastards the lawyers are. No, no, okay. So, so hold on. You have every right to communicate that. We will report it. Here is our journalist. He has a list of questions. Tell them what you want to tell them, and then answer the questions. Or else, we're going to stay away. I can't imagine Boris Johnson. Ringing the BBC and tell them, listen, you know, th- interrupt the six o'clock news because there's this N- human rights NGO and they don't want us to kill migrants. And so go- I need to speak for ten minutes and tell t- t- tell them what you know, tell the public what bastards they are. This is unimaginable in democracy. This is something you'd expect Kim Jong Un to think of, not, not 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 a leader of a democracy. What can the press do about that? And the press needs to fight back. Yes, through its reporting, and you see that whatever you know I, 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 in press conferences that the prime minister then relented and gave. I think journalists give give him you know, a proper hard time, and I think it gets there. It's unfortunate that it's diluted by the ritualistic uh, question from the super one. Lucky you know that that just just gives the prime minister you know, a public blowjob to, to to interrupt the, the pressure from proper reporters. But, um, uh, by and large, people do their job in the best of their ability. But you need to fight back also as a community of journalists. And, 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 And this is where we are extremely weak in this country. Because what's happening is that the only news reporting and news coverage that can afford and is certain of its survival is effectively the coverage that is funded by the state, which is in control of the government, or political parties, which run at a loss because yes, we have to subsidize this and we can't afford to run it commercially, but at least you would drown out criticism of us and replace it with this you know, public adulation, which we pay for. But anyone else who's doing this business as a business, anyone else who's trying to do journalism and fund it through their own steam is struggling. COVID-19, like many other businesses that struggle, was merely an acceleration of trends. But um, it is no longer an unimaginable scenario for this country to continue to exist with One TV, and Net TV, and TVN, but not having The Times, or Malta Today, or The Independent. Now, these are some of the few places that sent in journalists that work for a pittance, that work long hours, that have no real career prospects, but who are the only people asking our prime minister tough questions. If these people go, all we have is a prime minister and their entourage, because that's what all they're a part of. Like, you know, dictators have official photographers. We'll still have television news, but we won't have information. And in the absence of that, we won't
0: have a democracy. You're one of the people who calls for people to take to the streets when you think it's time for protests. And you also gather people to attend gatherings marking Daphne's assassination on the 16th of every month. This couldn't be done a few weeks ago when more restrictions were in place in Malta. Did this affect your mission? Yes,
1: Um, but only in part. Because, you, you know, you get people to protest, For In in two ways. One is when they're hearing nothing. You get people to protest because there is no outcome. And I think that really was what drove the monthly vigilance. We wanted to make sure, you know, go back to October 2017. People are angry, they go out in the streets. Go to November, they're marking a month, it's still fresh. Go to December, it's almost Christmas people are protesting, but I can tell you, I mean, I, was, I wasn't I was an activist before the 16th of October of 2017, but I sort of got sucked into this with people who were, let's call them professional activists, people who had been campaigning on different issues for, for all their lives. And and by December, those people were saying, okay, we've done our bit, now we're looking for the next issue. And they wanted to, you know, they, they thought they were done, you know, sort of, we shouldn't overdo this now, sort of, we protested three, four times, We've expressed our anger. Uh, now, you know, now we we'll look for another development permit that we're angry about. I didn't feel that way. I I, I I felt that ultimately that is that was exactly what the government was hoping for. That like everything else in this country, it fizzles out and, and, and you know, people go back home and and forget, you know, get busy with something else. I, I really didn't want people to forget because that is what the government wanted. And intuitively, like many other people, I felt the government had much to hide in this case. In January, January was the first vigil and the very first activity that I, I actually called. So after Christmas, on the, when the 16th of January was approaching, the other NGOs and what have you said, okay, you know. We're, we're done. I said, no, 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 we're not done. And manueldelia.com, my website, said, listen, I'm going to continue the protest myself in front of the court. Anyone willing to join is welcome. And some 100 people showed up. Then it happened again in February. And then organizations that really focused on this issue, Occupy Justice mostly, groups, call them what you want. Um, you know, built this up and, and, and kept it going. And that is a protest, I would say, the monthly vigils, but also people going every day to light candles and put flowers at the memorial. That's a daily, it's a constant protest. That is a protest that comes out of not seeing any progress in the investigation and the criminal action that needs to be taken. Then there's the other protest, the sort of protest that really, you know, built up then in October, November, and December of last year. And there's a protest of anger. When something actually starts happening, and you start hearing confirmation of your deepest suspicions of involvement of people, of the cover-up, of the exposure of people in politics to this, and that, that, you know, that people come out to say, to, to really demand an immediate consequence. Listen, we've heard that Keith Campbell is involved in this. Keith Campbell cannot be Chief of staff and Prime Minister anymore. He must leave now. And if he doesn't leave the next day, they'll go again the next day and say he must leave now. And then they'll, if he doesn't leave, they'll go again the next day. They must leave now until they leave. Now, that second set was interrupted by COVID-19 because progress in the investigation. Stopped and progress in the judicial election stopped during COVID 19. The minute court reopened, people started being angry again. It, it, it just reopened all the wounds. So, COVID 19 slowed down, and we needed to reimagine activism like the vigils, activism like that. Activism which is dependent on frustration of no progress. And that, yes, did. Many people obviously were distracted by COVID. To think about what was not happening elsewhere um, and that had that effect but we picked it up very quickly there's already been a vigil in June people picked up this campaign where they had left it left it off because many people more people than in October 2017 seventeen, realised that apart from the anger about what happened to Daphne which is entirely justified there's also anger about what happened to this country you have a bunch of politicians and a bunch of criminals who stole the wealth of a generation, who stole a country from this generation. Not, not us, not me, but my children um, and 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 people are seriously disturbed by that. They're seriously angry by that. And uh, you know, it, it, it's a good thing that. It may not be obvious to our culture, but it's a good thing that we give ourselves the opportunity to express that, and to let them know just what we think of them.
0: You're describing life in times of a government which it's, at best, that critics say isn't so keen in finalizing the investigation into Stephanie's murder, and we also touched upon its disregard for human rights of other non-Maltese people, would you see any light at the end of the tunnel? I
1: think the light really comes um, the more people realize that this affects them. And, and unfortunately, the process of realization is painful. For, for many, um, there was a temptation of being ambivalent about the killing of the Caruana Galizia. Yeah? That is how it started more than two years ago. Now that ambivalence is changing as people realize that, for example, the journalism that killed her, the, the stories that she investigated, if they had been acted upon at the time, if bent cops were fired, if uh, the corrupt relationship between people in business and people in politics was interrupted, if rotten, corrupt politicians were kicked out and replaced, if, 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 if all that happened, Who wouldn't be trying to persuade Maneval right now that we're not a bunch of crooks? That any money that comes through here is effectively intended for crime, or is covering up crime? In in the very beginning of this discussion I had with you, you told me about, you asked me about uh, being hated. And and I said, you know, uh, unfortunately, The job of a journalist, if done properly, is the job of a Cassandra, is the job of giving people bad news, but not only bad news about what other people have done, but bad news about the choices they have made. This country chose to support the Labour Party in 2013, which is almost an understandable judgment call that was made, because, you know, changes desirable in a democracy, because the other guys had been there for 25 years, because you know Joseph Muscat was full of promise. I don't think anyone can be criticized for making the choice. Well, there are reasons to criticize, but it's an understandable event in our history. But the election of Joseph Muscat in 2017 is not understandable. That is a choice this country made. In full knowledge of what... So, wh- wh- who they were electing. That was a choice that was made in the context of all the information that Defnica Carmona Galicia provide, provided. It is analogous to the members of the Nationalist Party choosing Adrian Delia in spite of Defnica Carmona Galizia's reporting, warnings, facts that she published and commentary, and commentary which is not based on facts but based on intuition and of character evaluation. A journalist has warned you, and you've ignored them. You've made your choice. Your choice has led to disaster of different scales and of different consequences. The election as Prime Minister of Joseph Muscat in 2017, and the election of Adrian Daly as leader of the opposition in 2017, were two disastrous choices, now we can say so, with, with, with all the facts that have come to light since then. And they were all forewarned, in both cases, by Defne Caruana Galizia, whom these voting bases chose to ignore. Now we're paying the price of those choices.
0: So Martinus is in a situation where it lost its police chief for his actions or inactions, and the same can be said for the ex-Prime Minister, Joseph Muscat, another chief of police, Various MPs or leaders, in deputy leaders in the ruling party. And now fresh allegations against at least other three sitting MPs, all r- somehow related to the Daphne case. When this is all over and people are going to look up, are they going to see any people left standing? Because apart from these people who there are direct allegations against, like you said, people were forewarned and there were their colleagues who were sitting right next to them while all this was happening?
1: It's a perfectly reasonable question, and, and, and the scary one at that. Because um, if, if there's anything to compare the situation with, I would say it's Tangentopoli in the early 90s in Italy. And that didn't end up well. Because ultimately what, we have, what you have is such a profound contagion um, in, in, in this affair, that if we are going to outgrow it, the change needs to be so fundamental, so radical, the, the polity becomes unrecognizable. Ultimately, if you keep going down, 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 deep into the causes of the mess we're in, you have causes that we haven't started examining yet for fear of the answer. It's 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 already incredible to me that the killing of Daphne Caruana Galizia led us to examine the way Malta appoints its judges and has appointed them since 1964. But consider the political underlying issues that we have: our electoral system that guarantees the two political parties exclusivity in parliament. The that what, what, what that is the root cause of institutional failures. So the fact that the two parties are guaranteed exclusivity in parliament has made our parliament a rubber step, a, 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 a detail, almost a ceremonial um, organize, organization or entity. It has no practical utility in terms of scrutinizing government because our system is, there are two parties and therefore one of them has to win and win completely and the other one has to lose and lose completely. And therefore, then, power is exercised exclusively by one political party. Effectively, this is a one-party state, but the party is an option between two. And that is a very limited view of our democracy. It's unworkable.
0: Manuel, we're recording this in the beginning of July. Are there any plans in your future you can tell us about?
1: I'm not smart enough to make plans. Um, I. Uh, I, I hope to be able to continue to write and to do this work that I'm doing on the blog and, and and in Republica and so on. And I say hope because, you know, it is an unpaid work. So I can only do it for as long as, you know, I can continue to live at the pleasure of my wife. Um, it, it It is, in practice, it is not a sustainable approach uh, to, to, to life. Everyone has to earn their keep. Um, I am fortunate enough to, to be supported by donors, by, by, by sponsors who give uh, that little bit of money um, uh, every month and, and, and by and large keep the costs in check and, and help me going. And that's good. And I hope to be able to continue to do so. I didn't set out to do this full time. When I started blogging, it was about June 2017, and right after the election. When when you came across the blog, because actually, definitely, uh, put up my first ever blog post on on the sixth of June, and she put it up on hers, and 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 I was just a lucky strike, I suppose. But 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 there it is. But I didn't set out to do it full time. I was working in Nigeria at the time. You know, I was I was earning a good living, and and I I just wanted to you know write some comments uh, for the fun of it and, because. People seem to be interested in what I had to say. I decided to become a full-time journalist. At about half past three in the afternoon on the sixteenth of October of two thousand seventeen, I I did not go back to the office, um, and, and and I told my boss at the time, um, I, I I you know can't can't think of anything else right now. This is what I want to do. I think the best way to be frustrated by all this is to think that there is a happy ending to look forward to. That There is an obvious Hollywood sunset at the end of this process. But, but this is a, a fight of a generation and it, uh, the outcome is uncertain and uh, you never know what your role is going to be in it. Um, so I cannot tell you I will stick around for as long as the job is done because the job is never done. The COVID-19 uh, period of reflection was an opportunity to think it's possible as well, that when we're pushed to make drastic changes, um, we, we do so, we can do
0: so. And, and, and hopefully that's that's a lesson of hope. thank you very much for being part of COVID Conversations. Thank you for having me. This brings us to the end of episode three. I'm already looking forward to speaking to you again soon. In the meantime, you can follow COVID Conversations on Facebook twitter and instagram and don't forget to subscribe to the podcast until next time stay safe